This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, it's no secret that we have a governor's race coming up this year. It is very hotly contested on both sides of the aisle. We're inviting all the candidates for governor on, Democrat, Republican, even third party. So far, we've had just about everybody on multiple times. Thus far, Governor Hochul has remained elusive. It's difficult to know why. I'm certainly not going to bite her head off or be rude or anything like that. But so far, she has not yet responded to our inquiries to be on this radio program. Someone who has generated a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of attention and has been more than willing to respond to our inquiries to come on to this this program has been Harry Wilson. Uh, Harry Wilson, if you didn't hear our previous interview with him, he ran for a New York State controller back in 2010, and that was the closest that the New York State Republican Party has had to a statewide win in two decades. He's a businessman, a restructuring expert, and he is a Republican candidate for governor of New York State. Harry, thanks for joining me on the radio again. Appreciate it. It's great. It's great to be with you, Frank. Thanks for having me. So uh, how's the primary going uh, at this point? I know uh, different candidates have released certain polls showing one of them ahead or another one ahead. Uh, What's your perception of how things are going into the August primary? Oh, into the June primary, excuse me. Exactly, right. (laughs) And it's easy to get confused given the two uh, dueling primary dates. But um, as of now, the Democrats have decided to still waste taxpayer money and have two dates. So the gubernatorial primary is on June 28th, along with the assembly primaries. And, uh, you know, we couldn't be more excited. Uh, We're sprinting ahead here in just under uh, 26 days uh, when we wake up in the morning. Uh, to go, and uh, we feel we're you know kind of hitting on all the right issues. We're connecting incredibly well with voters. You know, our our voter contact, both with with uh, our TV advertisements and, and a bunch of other things we're doing, including digital, have really resonated. Uh, and so we feel really good about where we're at. Uh, I think you know the, the reason I think is because the voters know that a, a politician is not going to solve the problems. They need somebody who's an outsider or a change agent who's not beholden to special interests in Albany, who kind of come in and shake Albany upside down, as I've done with company after company for 30 years, and really make, make Albany work for the people of the state. Uh, and uh, so I'm incredibly energized by the reaction we're getting, and we just got to keep pounding away for the next 26 days. Uh, so uh, I want to sp- speak mostly about policy, namely on the number one issue for Democrats, Republicans, and independents in the state right now, crime. But uh, just to talk about the politics for, for a minute. So if the primary is at the end of this month, when does early voting start for the Republican primary? Yeah, I should check the exact date. It's either the 15th or the 18th. It's, uh, I can't remember if it's, exact, it's 10 days or, or 13 days, but it's right in the code. One of the things that I've been a little surprised by, uh, particularly over these last couple of years, is that Republican voters seem to be a little bit more reluctant than Democratic voters to engage in early voting. Are you encouraging your voters uh, to get out and vote early? Are you encouraging them to vote on Election Day? Are, you, are there any special uh, special instructions that you're giving people that are registered Republicans who happen to be Wilson-inclined? Yeah, so I'd, I'd say a couple things. One, um, obviously we want to encourage everybody to vote. Uh, I think it's incredibly important. Obviously this election is, is certainly incredibly important, not just from my own personal perspective, but more importantly for the benefit of the state. Um, look, I think we, we have to play within the rules of the road as they stand. And so, you know, for people who um, it's for them, it's more convenient to vote early. We certainly encourage that. I, I tend to vote on Election Day. I just, you know, that's my own 
personal preference unless I'm traveling, which gets to do absentee, but I obviously will be voting in person on this election day. Um, I think the, I think the most important thing is, um, you know, uh, oh, and I, I guess the other thing I'd add, Frank, is that we do find that certainly the big, as you said, a, a big preference for Republicans on voting on election day. Um, look, I think we do have a serious set of questions around election integrity in our country, unfortunately. You know, in the last six presidential elections, all the presidential elections of this century, three of them, the side that you know, lost, challenged, and uh, attacked the side that won, um, you know, 2000, 2016, 2020. And that's just not good for democracy. So we really do need to kind of deal with election integrity. But for the purposes of this election, we've got to deal with the rules of the road as they are. And, and so we just want to make sure people maximize the likelihood they vote. I, I read this week that on the, the the Republicans in the governor's race this year have spent more money cumulatively than any Republican campaign for governor since 2002. And that's not adjusted for inflation. Those are um, those those are raw dollars. Do you think is that simply a function of you having access to a lot of money and uh, Congressman Zeldin having access to a lot of money? Or do you think that's a reflection on some donors part and on the candidates part that the Republicans actually have a real shot at winning this year? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. They're all related. I think people feel that this is, um, for the right Republican, the best year we have to win in 20 years. So, you know, donors, uh, rightly or wrongly, generally don't want to give to losing causes. And so I think that's definitely part of it. Uh, I think part of it is because we do have a you know, contested, you know, a heavily contested primary, the, the first statewide primary, uh, I believe, since 2012. And, uh, and so that's part of it. Um, you know, I think I, you know, I've, been fortunate to be able to kind of invest a fair amount of personal resource, but also have raised a lot of money. Uh, Congressman Zeldin's raised a fair amount of money over a much longer period of time. Uh, and so I think it's, it's all those things kind of coming together. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, I think it's, you know, it, what ends up happening, I believe, is it really makes all the candidates better. I, I fully expect to win the primary, but I think whoever wins the primary will be best positioned as a result to, to, to go on and, and get the best possible showing in the general election. Uh, you've unveiled something called the Keeping New York Safe Plan. Uh, the crime issue is something that all the candidates have addressed when I've spoken with them, and I hear them talking about it all over the state, uh, in the city, the suburbs, upstate, western New York, whatever. In a nutshell, what exactly is the Keeping New York Safe Plan? What's Harry Wilson's plan to fight crime in this state? Sure. So let me give you a little bit of background on it. So it's a 14-page plan. It's, the whole plan is on our website at harrywilsonforgovernor.com. Um, it is a plan we developed after dozens and dozens of interviews of uh, men and women in law enforcement across the state, across different parts of law enforcement, police officers, uh, prosecutors, defense attorneys, corrections officers, and really did a deep dive about what people who are on the front lines are seeing in the field. And one thing, uh, Frank, that, that probably won't surprise you but will horrify you is the most common response we got from these folks. And this is, again, all over the state, different walks of life, is all of them said, you know, no one in politics has ever asked me for my opinion. And that is exactly what's wrong with politics. You have people in Albany who are making decisions not based on the real world but based on an ideology that uh, through that ideology has made New Yorkers much less safe. And that is totally unacceptable. As I, as I often say, the first duty of government is to protect its citizens. And the fact that we have elected officials in Albany who have made New Yorkers less safe because of a failed ideology and bad policies, they've never even bothered to ask the people who are actually on the front lines their views, 
is, is outrageous. It tells you everything you need to know about Albany. So when we went through that plan, we basically came up with a four-part proposal. And the first three uh, parts are very straightforward. The fourth is a very large list, which I'll explain. So the first part is um, repealing cashless bail and the bail reform policies. There's no doubt that they've played a significant role in the spike in crime, both in the data as well as when you talk to people in the field. Uh, and so you know, we believe that judges should have, a, uh, have discretion around bail and that they should have, a, have the ability to use a dangerous standard in, in assessing that discretion. As 49 other states and the federal government allow today. And so we think that would go a long ways towards addressing the bail reform issues. The second bucket is um, supporting our men and women in law enforcement who have one of the toughest jobs in America with both the human resources and the financial resources to do the job they know how to do well. Um, and that's everything from staffing to uh, compensation to um, things like plainclothes units that have been proven to work, but in some parts of the state were dismantled uh, wrongly. And so that's you know, kind of supporting our, our uh, men and women in uniform. Uh, and the third is firing road district attorneys. We have this phenomenon where in, in many counties, uh, three of the uh, boroughs in New York City, Ulster County, Albany County, uh, two or three other upstate counties where you've got um, rogue district attorneys who are basically refusing to prosecute clear crimes. That is unacceptable. Their job is to prosecute crimes. And the governor, under Article 13 of the state constitution, has the authority to remove district attorneys who do not do their job. Uh, it's not been used in a long time because we haven't had a, a situation where DAs have not been doing their job, but I would absolutely use it if we, if we have prosecutors refusing to enforce well, it. Has it ever been used in, in, for a DA, yes. as far as you're aware? Yes, is, I know it was used at least in one case in the 30s. Because uh, I, I know Mayor Walker was removed as after the and there was a result of the Seabury Commission uh, by yes, for, Governor Roosevelt in the 30s. But yeah. I, I didn't realize there was a DA removed in the 30s as well. Yeah, and I don't have the name of it off, off the top of my head, but it was. But there was also DA, and I think it's totally unrelated to the the Mayor Walker issue, but it was um, in a similar era. Uh, but no, it was, it was actually afterward, because after it was when FDR was president, I believe. Got it. Um, Got it. So it was, uh, so, um, so, but it's, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not arguing it's, it's frequent, and nor should it be frequent, but in extru- we also haven't had this phenomenon in my lifetime. I'm 50 years old. We've never had situations I can think of where DAs refuse to enforce serious laws. Well, look, you're not going to get an argument from me about uh, DAs who won't enforce the law that they take an oath to enforce. But uh, just to play devil's advocate on on that one, you're going to have a lot of people listening in places like Manhattan, in places like uh, Brooklyn, uh, Queens and around around the state that these folks were elected in the case of the most controversial person on that, that list, Alvin Bragg. And the last time you were on the show, we talked a little bit about uh, your history with Alvin Bragg. But in the case of Alvin Bragg, he was overwhelmingly elected in the in the general election. How do you think the voters in a place like Manhattan are going to react to a, a politician removing their choice and denying them the opportunity to do it, and especially in the case of Alvin Bragg, you have the added uh, it, the added issue of him being the first black district attorney that Manhattan has ever had. I mean, I, I mean, don't you have to have some respect for the voters' decisions, and uh, don't they get the right to make their own mistakes and repair them in the next election? How many people have to die before that happens? Right. That's the problem. I mean, my job as governor is to keep people safe, and I take that incredibly seriously. And I will not rest, and I will not 
not use any power I have at my discretion to be able to protect people. That's my job, and I will, I will use it to, to, to whatever extent I can. Um, you know, this notion that people are waiting on making major changes in policy because they've got to wait through the legislative session or maybe they want to address it in the fall, how many people are going to die between now and then? It's totally unacceptable. Uh, I know. And in, so, uh, no, sorry, go ahead. No, so I mean, that's, like, that's, that's my job, and I will, do, I will use every power at my discretion to, to use it. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing is I don't believe that most people who pulled the lever uh, in that DA election knew what they were getting. Uh, they were pulling the lever for a Democrat, which is what the vast majority of Manhattan votes for, and he won by 60-some points. Um, I don't – if anybody expected a 40 percent spike in violent crime in the next three months – uh, I, I don't think people were voting for that. Well, but um, by that logic, right? Uh, Eric Adams has been mayor in the same amount of time, and we've seen the the same sort of spike in gun violence. So, it once mm-hmm. the DAs are fired, if uh, gun violence and crime in general continues to s- skyrocket upward as it has under the Adams mayoralty, is that the next logical step to remove Eric Adams? Well, you know, it's interesting. So Mayor Adams has been very vocal about wanting to see these same policy reforms that I talk about. Not, not, we don't have the same list, but we have a, a lot of overlap in our list. And the legislature has turned a deaf ear to him. Now, I would, where I would fault Mayor Adams is I don't think he's been aggressive enough in pushing for change in the legislature, but he also has a weak hand as the mayor of New York City relative sure. to, to Albany. Uh, so you know, I think he and I would actually see things eye to eye. You know, as you know, he's a former police officer, and he understands these issues better than most. And so he, and he's been an advocate for a lot of the things we talk about in our crime plan. Uh, so, so I think that's. So I think we're, we'd be uh, much more aligned. And I also think the other thing is, look, I've, I've had a, have a lot of tough conversations in my business career, as you might imagine. Um, sure. All the situations I come into, companies that are near bankruptcy, and had to have thousands of tough conversations with executives and people who failed in their jobs. What I find in most people, you lay out exactly the facts. Here's what you need to do. And most people will try to address those. If they don't, well, then you have to take you know, kind of more aggressive action. Um, but I think that's, that's in the real world. That's what would happen. I'd sit down with Mr. attorneys who aren't doing their job, explain why it's so essential that they do, and how if <laughs> I have the power to remove them if they don't. And generally, I think you'll see most, most people kind of address it and, and uh, it, you know, more importantly, get to the right place in protecting the citizens of their of their jurisdiction. All right. If uh, people are just tuning in, we're talking with Harry Wilson. He's uh, running for governor. If you want to learn more about his plan to fight crime or uh, any of the other aspects of his plan for New York, you can go to his website, harrywilsonforgovernor.com. That's harrywilsonforgovernor.com. Now, you mentioned the legislative role in this whole thing and how uh, Mayor Adams and to some extent even Governor Hochul, uh, they've been trying to get the legislature to move a bit more in a tough-on-crime direction. Now, if you're governor and you have your uh, 14-page plan to reduce crime in New York and the legislature is unwilling to meet you halfway, where do you go from there? What do you do if the legislature won't go along with any part of the Wilson crime-fighting agenda? Yeah, so that's, that's a, it's an important question, and let me, let me walk you through it. So, you know, the, the, a big part of my turnaround plan more broadly on taxes and the cost of living is driven by the governor's enormously broad budgetary authority. And the way it works is the governor proposes a budget, and if the legislature doesn't approve it by March 31st, they don't get paid until the budget's approved. And so it gives the governor extraordinary leverage in forcing changes to the budget process. Now, there's a lot of case law 
that says that that has to be restricted to economic fiscal issues, which is what I would normally do. However, in the case of crime, most of these um, so-called reforms, including Cashel's bail, were, were put in place through the budget process. That's how Cuomo and Hochul got it done in the first place in 2019. And so I would argue that I, would, I could use the budget process to undo those reforms in the exact same way. And if the counter-argument is, well, you can't use the budget process for policy, I would say, well, that's how you got it done in the first place. So either it was invalid in the first place or we could do it now. Either way, we get to the same place. And it, that is, that's why I explicitly talk about that turnaround plan having the three big pieces. It's, it's a, a, a massive reduction in spending and taxes, the biggest tax cut in the history of the state. It's a significant reduction in the cost of living driven by regulatory issues coming out of Albany. And third is crime. That's all part of that first-year budget that we will have a big fight over in 2023, but we will eventually get done. Well, it's certainly going to be very interesting to see uh, where things go in terms of the general election and in terms of the primary campaign. Uh, We're talking with Harry Wilson. He's a Republican candidate for governor. Uh, There was a lot of criticism from several of the other Republicans about the Zeldin's campaign attempts to throw certain candidates, including yourself, off the ballot. In your view, does that say something about uh, Lee Zeldin's, either his campaign's character or his campaign being fearful of having competition on the ballot, that they would go to such lengths to challenge the petitions of their opponents? Yes, it does. I think it speaks volumes about both his integrity and his approach to governing. Um, It's quite Cuomo-esque in a lot of ways. Let me explain Mm. why. So he went around the state telling people that he would not have a primary because he would get us thrown off the ballot in March. In March. We started petitioning March, whatever it was, March 2nd, I think it was. There's no way he could have known where we would have ended up and how many signatures we would have had, what our, what our outcomes would have been. But he was telling donors, he was telling political people that he would not have a primary because of that. And, and so when we showed up, now, you know, I had almost 37,000 signatures, more than any Republicans in the history of New York State. Uh, Andrew Giuliani had 24,000, Rob Astrio had 20,000, all substantially over the threshold of 15,000 um, combined. And then others had others that didn't quite qualify. There are almost 100,000 total signatures filed demanding a primary. And Lee Zeldin, rather than accept that, and I, we had a letter to uh, him and Chairman Langworthy talking about this, rather than accept that, he basically initiated litigation against each of us mm. and then lied about it. The New York Post called him up and said, you know, um, we understand you're challenging the petitions. And his spokesperson said, no, no, that's not us. They're un- unconnected to the campaign. <laughs> well, one of them was his law school classmate. One was put up to it by one of his, uh, you know, kind of henchmen in Albany. I mean, it's outrageous. It was, it's, it was patently untrue. Uh, it was obviously untrue. It was a total lie. And, and so then they backtracked from that a week later, and they said, oh, no, we, we kind of joined later. Are you, I mean, honestly, these are very sophisticated uh, processes, right? And election law is very technical. It's, it, it didn't, it, it never passed the smell test. So it was a clear lie. And then, you know, uh, on my challenge, he dropped it almost immediately because it was, we were so far over the threshold, it was a waste of his time and money. But then he took Andrew and Rob, who worked really hard to get their signatures and their teams, their volunteers, um, to, to the mats and, uh, and, and, and lost, by the way. But it was just, I think it tells you everything about what he wanted to do which was avoid competition, avoid scrutiny of his record, try to coast into uh, the general election. I think a bit of an entitlement mentality when he, you know, when he was interviewed after the convention, 
one of the reporters asked him, um, what do you say to your potential primary opponents? And he said, well, you should tell them they already lost. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just, it's incredibly arrogant. And that's, that's who he is. I, you know, I've known me since 2010. We campaigned together in 2010. I supported him for Congress in 2014. And, you know, sometimes people get in office, they stay in office too long. Uh, they have, you know, smoke blown at them. They become arrogant. They become entitled. They become removed from people. And that's what's happened to Lee Zeldin. Uh, and I think that's that's why he cannot win against Kathy Hochul. That's why I don't believe he'll win the primary either. Uh, but we'll find that out soon. Uh, but ultimately, you know, what I my, my critique of him is it's out of ethics because of what I just talked about. It's his, his you know, really poorly run campaign. The guy had a year where the entire party apparatus was lined up behind him and, and basically in lockstep. And he is has basically nothing to show for him. Um, he has, if you look at his campaign filings, he talks about having $3 million in cash. Almost all of that is general election cash. So he only has a few hundred thousand dollars for the next few weeks for the primary. So I think you'll see him fading fast, um, much like his you know, kind of overall message. And um, we'll see. But, but, but ultimately, it's about you know, people really understanding who they're electing. And I think his issues around, around integrity, his, his personal style, which, again, very Cuomo-esque, the fact he's never run anything in his life, uh, the closest thing he's ever run is a, is a campaign which has been run poorly. I think all those things say that he would be a poor governor and uh, he'll be a poor general election candidate. Uh, I could talk to you all day, and I have no doubt over the course of the next 28 days we're going to speak a great deal, and uh, probably from now until November. Um, one last question regarding the politics of the race. Now, I uh, I could easily see myself voting for you. I'm not a registered Republican, though. I know you submitted petitions, as uh, Lee Zeldin did and some of the other candidates have, to create a third-party line to give folks an additional line to vote for you. If you should lose the Republican primary, and I understand that you believe you're in a very good position to win, and look, if you look at a lot of the data and a lot of the trend lines, there's a lot of evidence for that. But if you should happen to lose the uh, primary, are you planning to campaign actively in the general election to get people like me who may want to vote for you but have been denied that opportunity in the primary the chance to do so in November? You mean as a, as a third-party candidate? Yeah, as I believe you're the candidate of the Unity Party. Uh, yeah, yeah, of United New York. And what, I, what I've said uh, is that I will support – if I, the Republican nominee is not me, I will support the Republican nominee. I fully expect to be the Republican nominee, but if I'm not, I will support the nominee. And I've said that to the United New York folks that I would not – uh, play a spoiler role as a, as a third-party candidate. Uh, their view, of course, is that I could win a three-way race uh, between the Republican nominee and Hochul, and maybe they're right. I don't know, but but, I, but I've said I'd support the Republican nominee. Uh, I know Rob Astrito has also said that. I believe Andrew Giuliani has said that. And curiously, Mr. Zeldin has not said that. <laughs> and so I think someone should ask him uh, whether he intends to do that or not. But the rest of us have said we want to support the Republican nominee if it's not us. Mm. Harry Wilson, going to be a very interesting race from now till the end of the month and uh, certainly from now till November. Thanks so much, and I'll look forward to talking with you again in the future. Whenever you have insomnia, as I mentioned when when we were off air recently, uh, please don't hesitate to call. You're always welcome. Thanks so much, Frank. Great to talk to you. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead.
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.